0: The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume. Lecture 11 Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Our subject this evening is the final two philosophers to be covered in this course, Bishop Barclay and David Hume. Both of these are 18th century philosophers, both are British empiricists, Both are derivatives of the trend developed by John Locke. Both are typical of the final epistemology offered by the period known as the Enlightenment. The 17th century, as you know, is called the Age of Reason generally. And the 18th, as a result, the Enlightenment. But the philosophers of the Age of Reason, as you also know, put forth deeply platonic and or skeptic notions of what reason consisted of. And the result was that the dominance of reason, of the explicit advocacy of reason, had to come to an end. And the two philosophers of the uh, Enlightenment period with whom it does come to an end are Berkeley and Hume. Now both of these men, I hasten to add, are, in their own view, staunch advocates of reason but when you see what their systems are you will see why other contemporary and later philosophers said reason has had its chance and has failed and the result was the ushering in of an era of avowed mysticism and irrationalism starting in the late 18th century and intensifying without exception to the present day. Let us then start this evening with Barclay, 1685 to 1753, so he was about 19 when Locke died. Now as a bishop, Barclay, needless to say, is a deeply religious man. One of the main goals of his philosophy was to combat what he regarded as a major obstacle to religion namely, matter. That is to say, the concept of an external, independent, physical reality. This, he believed, was always a thorn in the side of religion. Religion preached that God created matter ex nihilo out of nothing, and there were always skeptics around, and not simply skeptics, to ask how can you get something out of nothing. The belief in matter always gave way periodically to people like Hobbes who said we can explain everything simply in terms of matter and thereby deny the soul, deny God, deny immortality. The belief in matter gave rise to mechanism, the idea that the laws of mechanics, the laws of physics explain everything that happens and we can dispense therefore with God's purpose, with God's plans, with God's miracles. But thinks Barclay, if we can get rid of the material world if we can show that there is no external physical world we will once and for all have cut the base out of the materialists the skeptics and the atheists in the most profound way and of course he is correct here the material world is the philosophic enemy of God so he knows what to attack now Berkeley, as I said is an empiricist He agrees with Locke that all knowledge comes from experience, there are no innate ideas, Uh, we can only acquire knowledge on the basis of experience, but he is much more consistent than Locke was, (coughs) as you'll see. He accepts all of Locke's basic premises and uses them to demonstrate the non-existence of the physical world. He is therefore classified, of course, as an idealist in the technical philosophic sense. We end up with Berkeley with a world of individual minds, presided over, of course, by God, each contemplating its own experiences. And thus we have a universe very similar to Leibniz's, only now we reach this kind of idealism not via the rationalist route of Leibniz but via the empiricist route of Berkeley, And because empiricism was much more influential in the Anglo-American world than rationalism ever was, Berkeley is the first really influential modern empiricist. Now, I want this evening to devote our time to Berkeley's arguments against the existence of an independent material world. You must understand, of course, when we talk about an external material world, We mean anything external to the mind and therefore that includes your brain, your body, your arms and legs and liver. All of that goes when the physical world goes. Now let's first of all get clear what Barclay is driving at before we hear his arguments. Consider the example of a toothache and ask yourself the question can you have a toothache without experiencing it? Can a toothache Not a tooth now, but a toothache. Exist or be real if you in no way perceive it, experience it, or are aware of it. Suppose I point at you, for instance, taking someone at random, and say to you, I'm sorry that you have such a raging, searing, painful toothache this evening. And you say to me, what do you mean I don't feel any toothache at all? I'm not aware of any such thing. What if I came back with well, what's the difference whether you're aware of it or not? After all, facts are real whether or not people are aware of them. A is A. Don't facts exist independent of consciousness? You'd say to me, well, look, this is a very special kind of existence you're talking about. A toothache is an experience. It's something that exists only in the mind. It is not an external fact you would say the very reality or being of a toothache consists in its being perceived. If nobody experiences the toothache, the toothache is unreal. Now, if you were prone to use Latin to express this viewpoint, you would say in an expression made famous by Bishop Barclay, esse est percipi. E-S-S-E, that's Latin for to be. E-S-T, which is Latin for is, P-E-R-C-I-P-I, which is Latin for to be perceived. In the case of a toothache, you would say, essa percipi, its being consists of its being perceived. If it weren't perceived, it would not exist. It would be nothing. Now, Barclay proposes to argue that matter Every kind of matter and every quality of matter is in the identical metaphysical position as the toothache. Not only color, sound, taste, temperature, but extension, three-dimensionality, solidity, size, shape, motion, everything pertaining to matter is simply a set of experiences, simply a set Of ideas in the mind. In the case of matter, he is going to argue esse est percipi. And there is therefore no independent external material world at all. Now this will be, according to him, therefore, the triumphant proof of what objectivism would call the primacy of consciousness. Physical existence is going to become simply a series of subjective mental experiences. And thus, Barclay's philosophy is referred to as subjective idealism. Idealism, because it believes that true reality is something more basic than the material world, subjective, to contrast it on the one hand to Platonism, which believes that true reality is the non-material, unconscious world of forms, and to contrast it, on the other hand, to the later view of Hegel, which believes that there is one cosmic consciousness, the absolute, which constitutes true reality. Berkeley believes that separate individual minds are real. Each individual subject is real. And reality consists of these individual minds and their content. And that viewpoint is known as subjective idealism. How does Berkeley defend a viewpoint like this? Well, he gives a great many arguments in his work on the principles of human knowledge and also in a famous series of dialogues uh, between two characters, Hylas and Philonous. Hylas deriving from the Greek word hyle for matter. So Hylas is the man who believes in matter. And Philonous, the man who has philo for nous, that is to say the mind lover, the idealist in the technical sense. And of course Philonous wins all the arguments. Now, I'm going to give you two of the major sets of arguments that Barclay gives. There's many more, but these two will be ample for our purposes. One set derives from the causal theory of perception, the causal and representative theories of perception, which I have stressed many times in this course. The second set derives from the primary-secondary quality distinction. Let's look first at the argument from the causal theory of perception. This is the viewpoint, as you recall, accepted by Hobbes, Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Locke, that all that we directly perceive as the experience is the experiences in our own mind, not reality. And you remember their reason. Uh, our senses obviously process the data we get, and there are we at the end of the chain perceiving only the end effects on us. Therefore, we don't directly perceive reality, only its effects on us. But they all claimed reality must exist to be the cause of our experiences and thus the name, the causal theory of perception. And they went on, although we don't directly perceive reality, we can know something about it because some at least of our experiences represent or copy or resemble reality. Locke had taken that view. Now here is where Barclay takes off and begins to slaughter both the causal and the representative theories of perception and in the process annihilate the material world. Well, let's start with the representative theory of perception. Berkeley begins, at least in the order that I'm giving you his arguments, by asking Locke, how can a sensation or an idea or an experience, which is what you say we directly perceive, how can any one of those things resemble or copy, or be like something that is not a sensation, an idea, or an experience. Consider the sensation or experience, for instance, of a shape, like a triangle. Now, says Locke, that sensation of a shape is just like the real shape out there in reality. Now, says Berkeley, what does it mean to say my experience of a shape is just like the real shape in reality? My experience is certainly not triangular. My experience doesn't occupy space at all. My experience has no size, but the real triangular entity has size. The real triangle might be moving at the rate of 30 miles an hour. My experience is certainly not moving at the rate of 30 miles an hour. It is therefore entirely gratuitous to talk about a similarity between a mental experience and a physical object. A sensation or an idea, he says, can resemble only another sensation or idea. What does it mean to say that mental contents resemble or copy reality? It doesn't mean anything legitimate. So much for the representative theory of perception. Now we go on, still within the same overall argument. Assume for a moment that there was some meaning to saying that our ideas resemble or represent reality. How can Locke say that any of his sensations or experiences resemble reality, even assuming it were meaningful to say so? To know whether his experiences resemble reality or not, he would have to do what? He'd have to have some access to reality and then compare his experience on the one hand, with reality on the other, and see whether they were similar or not. But according to Locke, this is impossible to do, because he never comes into any contact with reality. Now, suppose, for instance, I open one hand to you and show you a quarter, and my other hand is closed behind my back, and you have no access whatever to what is in my other hand, if anything. And now I say to you, does the thing that I have in my open hand, the quarter, resemble or not the thing in my other hand? Well, your obvious answer would be, I have to know what's in your other hand. But suppose I say you never can perceive what's in my other hand. Well, your obvious conclusion would have to be you haven't the faintest idea whether what I have in my hand does or doesn't resemble the other because you have no access to it. Indeed, if you never could come in contact with the content of my other hand, you'd have to say it was unknowable to you. And that is precisely, says Berkeley the position that Locke is in with regard to the material world. If we only perceive our own experiences, we have then got no way to go outside of our experiences and compare them to reality. And therefore, if the causal theory of perception is correct, the material world must be unknowable. But now, says Berkeley, accept this much, which he does if there were a material world it would be unknowable because we never perceive it we only perceive our own experiences now he simply adds another premise to this which which other premise is perfectly logical he says the idea of an unperceivable material world is a contradiction in terms The idea of an unperceivable or unknowable world, a, a material world, is a contradiction in terms. What do we mean by a material object? Well, if you go by common sense, you mean by a material object, something which can be seen, something which can be touched in appropriate circumstances, something which can be tasted, smelled, heard, etc. Now, suppose I hold up this hand for the benefit of the people on the tape. There is nothing apparently on it and i tell you take a look at this apple and you say to me what apple i say well this is a special kind of apple it happens to be unperceivable unknowable you can't see it you can't taste it you can't touch it well you'd say to me how do you distinguish that kind of apple from nothing whatever if it's a physical apple it must be perceivable a material thing is a thing capable of being perceived or experienced which is obviously true now we simply combine these two premises if you're taking the argument down it's a simple syllogism with two premises leading to a conclusion premise one a material thing is a thing capable of being perceived premise two the only things we're capable of perceiving are experiences in our own minds that's the premise of Locke all we perceive is experiences of our own minds Well, what follows from those two premises? Just think about it. A material thing is a thing we can perceive. The only things we can perceive are experiences in our own minds. The conclusion must be a material thing is a collection of experiences in our own minds. Therefore, it's true that we can perceive material things directly, but that's because material things are simply experiences in our own minds. In other words, says Barclay, I'm simply combining two premises which no one can contest. On the one hand, a premise of the common man on the street with his good common sense. The other, the premise that all philosophers grant. The common man says a material thing is a thing capable of being experienced. I agree. All the philosophers contribute the second premise, the things we experience are the ideas in our own mind I put the two together and my conclusion is therefore a material thing is a set of ideas in our own mind now of course we move in for the kill an idea, a sensation an experience in the mind is in the same category as the toothache it can only exist when it is being experienced An unsensed sensation, an unthought idea, an unperceived perception, an unexperienced experience is a contradiction in terms. Unless the mind experienced its own experiences, those experiences wouldn't exist. The very being of an experience consists in its being perceived. But matter, as I have demonstrated, he claims, is simply a set of experiences. Final conclusion, matter only exists insofar as it is being experienced. Therefore, in the case of matter, esse est percipi, to be is to be perceived. So much for the external world, QED. How do you like that one? Now I quote from Barclay. Quote, It is indeed an opinion strangely prevailing among men that houses, mountains, rivers, and in a word all sensible objects have an existence, natural or real, distinct from their being perceived by the understanding. This is a strange opinion. (laughs) But with how great an assurance soever this principle may be entertained, Yet whoever shall find in his heart to call it in question may, if I mistake not, perceive it to involve a manifest contradiction. For what are the aforementioned objects but the things we perceive by sense? And what do we perceive besides our own ideas or sensations? And is it not plainly repugnant that any one of these or any combination of them should exist unperceived? Unquote. Notice Barclay says... He's a champion of the senses. He is an empiricist. He believes the senses are perfectly reliable. They give you reality. Only reality is the experiences in your own mind. In fact, says Barclay, I'm the one real assured champion of the validity of the senses. You can be sure your senses aren't deceiving you and that your experiences are correct because they are only what you experience them to be. As long as you believe in an external material world, he says, there's always the question, how do you know your experiences are giving you that world as it really is? But if all there is is your mind and its experiences, then you can be sure your experiences are correct because your experiences have no nature other than what you experience them to be. Your toothache is only however you feel it to be. And since matter is all in that category, you can rest assured with your experiences of matter because it's whatever you experience it as. Now you see that on the premises of uh, Locke, this argument is unanswerable. You see the disasters implicit in the causal and representative theory of perception. The question, therefore, for anyone who wants to retain the physical world is how to answer the Cartesian-Lockean argument. And remember, their argument is we must perceive reality by its effects on us. That seems unanswerable. And those effects seem to be in some way a function of our particular sensory constitution. If we had a different constitution, it would produce different effects aren't we then inevitably pushed back into our own consciousness each of us experiencing his own private experiences cut off from access to reality at which point Barclay comes along and says if you're cut off there is no such thing and simply wipes it out and here we're back all the way to Protagoras' original argument against the senses which has now blossomed in full That is the point that I am going to discuss at length next week. So, hold on for one more week. Now, I may say that there are many people who disagree with Barclay vigorously and have not the faintest idea how to answer him. There was a school of materialists in France, for instance, who declared that Barclay's viewpoint was an insane delusion but unfortunately irrefutable. (laughs) All right, let us look now at the second argument that I will give the last this evening of Barclays, the argument from the primary secondary quality distinction. Now, this no longer depends on the causal theory of perception, so let's not assume the causal theory of perception. Let's start afresh. Nevertheless, says Berkeley, I will still show you that matter is a set of ideas in the mind. This time, his taking-off point is the traditional standard distinction, which goes all the way back to Democritus, although the terminology is Locke's, between primary and secondary quality. Now, you remember that the philosophers traditionally distinguish between these two qualities on the basis of two main arguments, the conceivability argument and the variability argument. The conceivability argument says, I can't conceive matter without primary qualities, but I can easily conceive it without secondary qualities. And therefore, that goes to show that one set of qualities is intrinsic in matter, the other is dispensable. And the variability argument is, certain qualities, the secondary ones, vary from perceiver to perceiver, and that proves they are subjective. A function of the sensory constitution of the perceiver whereas others the primary are invariant constant the same for all perceivers and that goes to show they are contributed by the real physical object now Barclay simply says I intend to wipe out both of these arguments and ruin the material world thereby he doesn't use the word ruin but that's the idea well, let's first consider the conceivability argument. Well, he says, maybe Locke can conceive of matter which has primary qualities and no secondary qualities. I, Bishop Berkeley, cannot. Can you, he asks, ever imagine a shape, to take that example of a primary quality, can you ever imagine a shape without a color? Go ahead right now, try. Visualize a shape For instance, a big triangle without a color. Well, of course, as soon as you obliterate the color in your mind, what happens to your image of the shape? Disappears. Now, of course, you might do it with some other secondary quality. If you were blind, you might imagine running your hands over this triangular shape and getting some sensation of warm, smooth surface. But if you obliterate that also, what is left of the shape? A shape that can't be seen, a shape that can't be touched, a shape devoid of color, texture, and every secondary quality. Well, says Barclay, I can't tell the difference between that and nothing at all. Shape is inseparable from some secondary quality. Let us say color. And if the color exists only in the mind, then the shape that we see must exist only in the mind also. Or give another example. I'll give you another example of a primary quality is supposed to be motion. Now suppose I say over to the left of me here is something moving, go and visualize it. But strip it of all secondary qualities. Can you conceive it? Can you imagine it? Can you visualize it? Obviously, you cannot. If you strip it of all secondary qualities, it simply evaporates. Now you can do this with all primary qualities. The general point, says Barclay, is you perceive the so-called primary qualities only by means of the secondary qualities. So if the secondary are unreal, subjective, and exist only in the mind, so must the primary be. In any event, they must be in the same boat metaphysically. If they're both one in the mind, both in the mind. If one in reality, both in reality. So much for the conceivability argument. Now, I interject here simply to call to your attention the fact that i have uh, deliberately been equivocating on one point barclay asks can you conceive shape without color and proceeds to answer the question can you visualize or form an image of shape without color now by the fact of switching the question from can you conceive to can you visualize That, of course, will immediately suggest to you that Barclay equates an abstract concept with an image. And that, of course, should suggest to you right away that Barclay is a nominalist, which he is, an avid, full-fledged nominalist, and this particular part of his argument depends upon his nominalism. Nevertheless, that is not his whole argument, and the rest continues even without it. Let us pick up the rest of it. Suppose you say, all right, Barclay, or Bishop, you have (coughs) shown to me that primary and secondary qualities are in the same boat and that I can't say one half is in the mind and one half is in reality. Well, I'm going to then go completely in the other direction. I will say all of them are intrinsic in physical objects. None of them exist in the mind. Very well, says Barclay. Now I will prove to you that the very same argument that proves that secondary qualities are only mental and subjective applies equally to primary qualities, namely the variability argument. Remember the reasoning. Since facts are facts, they don't depend upon the perceiver. And therefore if something varies from perceiver to perceiver, it must simply be mental. Well, says Barclay, I propose to show you an obvious fact. All primary qualities vary from perceiver to perceiver just exactly as the so-called secondary qualities do. They are just as dependent upon the conditions of our perception, and if such variability proves subjectivity, it proves that the primary qualities are just as subjective as the secondary ones, and thus that the whole distinction collapses. Now, for instance, consider the question of size, which is supposed to be a real orthodox kosher primary quality. Well, is size independent of the conditions of perception? Well, a standard example given by followers of Barclay here is to ask, what is the size of the sun? Is it the size that you see if you take an Apollo spaceship and head right straight for the sun obviously you're going to get a much bigger experience then if you look at the size from the earth which makes it look about the size of a 50 cent piece is the size you see the size with your ordinary eyes or the size under a magnifying glass what if there was a race with magnification built into their eyes they would see everything bigger than we do So size obviously depends upon your structure of your organs and your distance from the object. It's variable. If variability proves subjectivity, size is subjective. And what about shape? Now here the standard thing for a professor of philosophy to do is to take a quarter or a penny and walk into the middle of a class and say, so you believe that this has a real shape. And the students, not yet having been completely corrupted, say yes. (laughs) Then he proceeds to have each of them describe the shape. And of course, he is so located that they all perceive it from different perspectives. So some people say they see a perfect circle, and other people say no, they see an ellipse slanted in one direction. And other people say no, they see an ellipse slanted in another direction. And certain people see only a tiny little rim, etc. And they all come up with different descriptions of the shape to which the professor says, well, you see... The shape varies with the perception. There is no such thing as the shape any more than there is the color or the temperature or the texture or the size. It all varies with the perceiver. If variability proves subjectivity, shape is just as subjective as uh, color and size. Now, of course, as far as motion is concerned, we can bring in Einstein and the so-called relativity of motion which is supposed to prove that something can be moving or at rest, depending upon the frame of reference of the observer, so that even motion is a variable and therefore subjective. And even such a hardcore primary quality as number, whether there's one quarter or two, is supposed to be a function of our experience and variable. For instance, press in your eyeball and you will suddenly see this single quarter multiply into two. Go ahead, you can try it, but don't press too hard or it'll it'll become zero because you'll go blind. (laughs) Now, of course, it's not normal for people to press their eyeballs in, but uh, we don't go by majority rule. We don't go by majority rule in philosophy. Obviously, the kind of eyes we have, therefore, I'm speaking now for the followers of Barkley, determine (laughs) what quantity we observe. And therefore, number, like shape, like size, like motion, are all variable, and therefore, they are all in the category of the so-called secondary qualities the whole distinction breaks down all qualities are subjective and in all cases therefore SA est per keepi. now you see the problem that we are in on the one hand you will say we have to make a distinction between primary and secondary qualities because after all our senses contribute something to our experience So doesn't it seem sensible on the face of it to say there's those qualities which derive from the kind of senses we have and those qualities which derive from the object, therefore two kinds of quality. And that was exactly the reasoning by which the primary secondary quality distinction was arrived at. But on the other hand, as soon as you make the distinction between two kinds of quality. Whatever test you use to justify that distinction, Barclay and his followers come along and prove that whatever argument shows that the so-called secondary are subjective applies just as well to the primary and you end up with no reality at all. Now, what is the answer to this particular problem? That's part of the same issue of the senses on which we will spend a good amount of time next week. The conclusion for Berkeley, at any event, is therefore the whole physical world with everything in it, all the furniture of the earth, is nothing but a series of experiences in the mind and would not exist if there were no beings perceiving it. Now there are people who try to refute this by uh, direct experience. I simply point out to you that that is a hopeless proposition to attempt to do. You cannot by direct experience refute Barclay because he will demand that you prove by experience that something exists when you are not experiencing it. And of course you can't do that. Whenever you experience it, you're experiencing it. It's like the story, for instance, of the drunk who was told after he reached a sufficient stage of intoxication that the street light went out whenever he closed his eyes and came back on whenever he opened his eyes. And, of course, he closed his eyes and opened them as rapidly as he could and looked up and he said, oh, it isn't true, the light is on. And the man told him, of course it's on, your eyes are open. You have to, uh, you, it only goes out when your eyes are closed. Now, obviously, you cannot refute that by experience because you would have to see it when you're not seeing it. And therefore, the question is, how do you refute Barclay? Since, uh, according to many people, the only way to refute him would be to perceive something existing when you're not perceiving it. And you can't do that. Well, of course, the way to refute him is to refute the premises which led him to this conclusion. By the way, a camera will not refute him. There are people who say the way to answer Barclay is to set up a camera in a vacant room and come back and then expose the film and then show the picture and that will show the room was still there when nobody was experiencing it. But of course Barclay would come back in such a case and say that doesn't prove anything. As soon as you left the room the camera disappeared. The whole room disappeared. Nothing existed when you didn't perceive it. And as soon as you came back, the camera came back in, and the film came back in with its particular alteration. If you want to know why it was altered, I'll tell you shortly. (laughs) In other words, he has to be answered on philosophic grounds. Now that's the, the thrust of Barclay's philosophy. We can cover a few last points before we leave him some philosophers ask well is not matter more than simply the sum of the qualities what about the substratum that has those qualities you recall Locke's substratum the thing underneath the qualities which sticks them all together the thing which has the qualities which Locke described as something I know not what well of course Berkeley has no difficulty whatever disposing of the substratum In this respect, he is perfectly correct. Uh, The idea of a substratum is the idea of something without any identity and is a completely invalid idea. Uh, Locke was contradicting his own philosophy completely in endorsing it, and Barclay is quite right to throw it out. Now, I might mention that Barclay, being a bishop, was not 100% consistent with regard to the issue of the substratum. He wanted to keep the spiritual substance, the soul, the self, uh, because religion required that. And so he said that in the case of the soul, there were not only the mental processes we engaged in, but also the substratum which bound and united them together. Now, how could he possibly keep the substratum in the mental realm, having denounced it in the physical? Well, he said, it's true that we don't have any clear idea of the substratum, but we have a notion of it. Uh, obviously, an extraordinarily lame viewpoint. <laughs> and Hume had no difficulty getting rid of it in the spiritual world either. It's a hopeless to try and keep it in either realm. Now, you may ask this question. If Barclay truly believes that S.A.S. Perikipi Does that mean that stars, for instance, don't exist when you're not perceiving them? Take the people in the very back row, this gentleman in the very back row. Now, don't touch the back of your head. So no one is presumably perceiving it. Can we conclude, therefore, that it does not exist? Or what about your apartment if there's no one there now? Or the famous example was, what about the tree out in the park, the tree in the quad, the quadrangle? Does it not exist if no one is perceiving it? To which Barclay's answer is, I don't mind you using the terminology that it exists when you don't perceive it. So long as you understand that its existence depends upon somebody's perception to exist, is to be perceived, est per keeping. So to say a thing exists when you are not perceiving it is either to say, if you looked, you'd see it. In other words, a statement about a material object is really simply a prediction about some mind's future experiences. Or else, to say a thing exists when you're not perceiving it is to say that some other mind or spirit, is perceiving it. But you don't have to worry, says Barclay, because even if no human mind is perceiving your apartment or the back of your head or the tree in the quad, there is always some mind perceiving everything and thereby keeping everything in existence. And guess who that is? God. Now, there is a famous limerick, if I can remember it, which has two stanzas which expresses Barclay's philosophy on this point. The first stanza explains the problem and the second the solution. It goes like this. There was a young man who said, God must find it exceedingly odd that this tree which I see still continues to be when there's no one about in the quad. And the answer is, Dear sir, your astonishment's odd. I am always about in the quad. And that's why this tree still continues to be, since perceived by, yours faithfully, God. (laughs) Now, that's Barclay's viewpoint. Now, his followers, of course, in later decades abandoned God and we were left with the viewpoint that existence goes out of existence when it is not perceived and in this sense S.A.S. Percipi although they may not know it is the perfect metaphysics for any evader because their premise is if you don't look at it it's not there and here is a full-fledged metaphysical demonstration allegedly of this viewpoint now a last point on Berkeley. Dr. Samuel Johnson is famous for having given, allegedly, a refutation of Barclay. And his refutation consisted of taking a stone and kicking it, by which he wanted to express his exasperation at what he took to be Barclay's denial of the reality of the physical world. He said, in effect, aren't you denying reality to our experiences? When I kick this stone, it's a real solid stone. It's not a mental image or a dream or a hallucination or an experience, it's reality. How can you have such a concept as reality if everything is mental? Now, if you deal with followers of Barclay, and there's quite a number of them today. I believe Einstein at one point claimed to be a follower of Barclay. You should know that they are vehement in saying that they're all in favor of reality. But, they say, reality is not an issue of something existing external to the mind or independent of the mind. Reality is an issue of the kind of experience that takes place in the mind. There are two kinds of experiences, and we can separate them on many counts. For instance, some experiences are involuntary. We can't get rid of them by an act of will. Whereas others can. We can. And so, for instance, obvious fantasies and mental images you can banish by an act of will, and by that very fact, they are disqualified from being part of reality. Or, another count. Some experiences are vivid, sharp, clear. Others are faint, pale, indistinct, blurred, vague. And of course, In this case, we normally take the faint, blurred ones and say, oh, that isn't reality, that's a dream. Uh, Whereas the sharp, clear ones, we say, that's reality. And most important, the third criterion of reality, some experiences are well-behaved. They are connected in a regular manner with previous and subsequent experiences. They are orderly. They obey what we call scientific laws. On the other hand, other experiences are wild and bizarre. They do not fit nicely into the scheme of the rest of our experiences. So, for instance, what is the difference for Barclay between a pink rat that you see after you drink a lot and a pink rat which is an actual rat only somebody poured pink paint on him? What's the difference? Well, a normal non-follower of Barclay says that the hallucinatory rat exists in the mind and the real rat exists outside of the mind. Barclay says nonsense. Both rats exist in the mind. But the difference is the hallucinatory rat is not well behaved. If you take the real rat and you take the experience of a knife and with that experience you cut into the experience of the rat you will find another experience, blood. Whereas if you take the experience of the hallucinatory rat and try and cut into it with the experience of a knife, you won't get any experience of blood. It doesn't bleed. And therefore, it is a badly behaved rat. (laughs) And consequently, we regard it as a hallucination, not as real. And therefore, the only difference between reality, on the one hand, And unreality on the other, or fantasy, is that reality is that set of involuntary, vivid, lawful mental experiences, whereas unreality is either voluntary, blurred, or at minimum wild. And therefore he says to Dr. Johnson, I don't deny that you kicked the stone, but The point is all you had was an experience of a stone followed by an experience of a toe followed by an experience of a pain all following one another in a lawful way and therefore the whole thing took place in the mind. Now if you say, but mustn't there be a cause of our experiences? Maybe we make up the voluntary, pale ones but what about the lawful, vivid, involuntary ones? We don't make them up since they're involuntary. We don't impose law on them, but they follow laws. If it's not an external physical world that causes our experiences, where do they come from? Well, says Barclay, you're right, they must have a cause. They must be produced in us by something external to us. And given the variety and order and lawfulness of these experiences, we can only infer that they must be caused in us by a being that is quote wise powerful and good beyond comprehension in other words by god god feeds us our experiences directly and imposes law and order upon them in reality therefore is a series of finite minds contemplating their own experiences fed to them all by the infinite mind God. You see therefore a reality very similar to Leibniz's view. So much for Berkeley's contribution to philosophy. The end of the material world. Berkeley, however is not as extreme as you can get. He's still a bishop. He believed in God. He believed in the soul. He believed in cause and effect, even if of a divine sort. He has taken Locke's premises partway to their ultimate conclusion, but not the full way. That honor goes to David Hume. Let us, therefore, turn to Hume. 1711 to 1776 the last the most influential the most consistent of the three famous British empiricists in fact he is so consistent so rigorous about deducing the final consequences from the premises of Locke and Barclay that he represents a complete dead end philosophically. Now if you think Barclay's universe is strange or Leibniz's or Spinoza's, you haven't heard anything yet. I'll quote you an anticipatory summary of Hume from Bertrand Russell. Quote, It is important to discover whether there is any answer to Hume. I'm excerpting a paragraph here. If not, there is no intellectual difference between sanity and insanity. The lunatic who believes that he is a poached egg is to be be condemned solely on the ground that he is in a minority. (coughs) Or rather, since we must not assume democracy, on the ground that the government does not agree with him. Notice we can assume the omnipotence of the government. (coughs) And Russell concludes this paragraph, quote, This is a desperate point of view, and it must be hoped that there is some way of escaping from it, unquote, which he never found. <laughs> Hume is the arch-skeptic in philosophy. Now, I add for your edification that you can become even more skeptical of Hume than Hume by applying his conclusions even more rigorously. Now you might wonder how you can become more skeptical than to reach the stage where you can't tell whether you are a poached egg or not. <laughs> the answer is in 20th century philosophy. The modern pragmatists and logical positivists, most of them are great admirers of Hume. He is their favorite, their top favorite among uh, historical philosophers. But they are really consistent and they regard Hume as old fashioned in certain ways, which he was, there's a limit to how much is possible even in the 18th century. <laughs> But you have to wait until you study contemporary philosophy for that. Hume is quite consistent enough for us this evening. Now, Hume's place in the history of philosophy is the final invalidation of reason. At least that's what people took it to mean. He comes to the conclusion that reason is impotent to give us any knowledge at all, and he claims to prove this position in reason. Now... (laughs) All of the preceding philosophers, with a few exceptions, fell into two types. They were either philosophers like Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Locke, Berkeley. All of them claimed to be very pro-reason, regardless of their conclusions or interpretation. And on the other hand, there were the outright mystics like uh, Tertullian, and we didn't mention Pascal, and people like uh, that who appealed blatantly to the faith, the heart, mystic revelation, etc., Now, Hume is the first modern philosopher in a major way to attack reason, like the mystics, but to do it in the name of reason. Now, of course, you may think Hobbes anticipated him, and he did, but Hobbes is really old-fashioned by comparison uh, to Hume. Hume is the first influential neo-mystic, meaning by that term the man who uses reason to invalidate reason. He dealt reason, in the opinion of philosophers, a philosophical knife blow, uh, and then Kant came on the scene and finished it off permanently. Let's now look at Hume. Well, to begin with, Hume was an empiricist, of course. He does not believe in any innate ideas. He believes in the tabula rasa. Experience is the source of all subsequent Cognition, and in this respect, he follows Locke. We get from experience simple, unanalyzable, self-contained ideas, blue, rough, straight, loud, pain, will, etc., and then we form complex ideas, which we build up by putting together or compounding the simple ideas. Hume's name for the simple ideas is impressions. These are the direct, immediate, unanalyzable experiences, the units out of which all other cognitive elements are constructed. Now, to this extent, he is simply a direct follower of Locke. But now Hume takes a direction which we saw in Hobbes, which I mentioned in Locke, which I mentioned in (laughs) Berkeley, and which I'm now going to emphasize in Hume. Hume declares that as an empiricist you must be a nominalist. You must be a nominalist, and Hume is an arch-nominalist. Remember, nominalism is the rebellion against universals, either of the Platonic or the Aristotelian kind. A rebellion allegedly in the name of sense experience, empiricism, science. We don't say the nominalists perceive any such entities as manness, bemanenness, subwayhood, etc. There are no sharp lines in nature. Remember the borderline case. Everything blurs into everything else. <coughs> Consequently, if universals are supposed to be sharp, fixed, abstract entities that have some being in reality, They are myths, there are no such things. There are no universals. All there is is human naming procedures. On the basis of our observation of certain rough resemblances, we decide to call a group of particulars by the same name. But the only universal is the word or the name. Classification, I'm just reviewing for you, is an issue of our subjective convenience and you recall this position is always associated with sensualism. Nominalism says there are no universals. Sensualism says then there is no such thing as the awareness of universals. In other words, there is no such thing as abstract ideas or concepts. All we have are percepts. This is a straight Hobbesian viewpoint. What we call an idea or a thought or a concept is only, remember the way Hobbes put it, a fading or decaying image of a sensory percept. The sensualist is the man who says that concepts are really ultimately only percepts. He's the man who takes sensory perception as the key to consciousness in every form and refuses to grant that conceptual consciousness is a distinct form of awareness. And this, of course, is done in the name of being empirical, scientific, anti-mystical. Now we've seen some consequences of, mis- of nominalism and sensualism. We, see, we saw in Hobbes the view that therefore classification is arbitrary, definition is arbitrary, general principles is arbitrary, and we finally ended up in Hobbes with the idea we have to have an absolute dictator to resolve disputes because uh, reason is helpless. But if you recall, when I presented Hobbes, I said he wasn't a consistent nominalist. Now you might wonder, how much more consistent can you be as a nominalist? You will soon see. The first thing then to recognize is that Hume is an extreme nominalist and sensualist. The only type of cognitive element that he recognizes are these direct experiential impressions. Now he grants that you can use the terminology idea as distinct from impression, but then you simply have to follow, in effect, Hobbes' idea. An idea is merely a faint copy, what we would call an image of an impression. It's equally concrete and specific. The only difference, says Hume, between a so-called abstract concept and a direct percept is the vividness, the intensity, the vibrancy of the percept as against the relative paleness and diffuseness and blurriness of the image. So if you want to have the thought of man, just form a little blurred, unvibrant, unvivid image of a man, and that is the totality of the abstract idea or concept man. And so for all so-called ideas. Now, on the basis of this uh, nominalism, Hume formulates explicitly a principle implied by nominalism ever since its beginning, but never made as explicit as it was in Hume. And since he is explicit, he can be much more consistent about it than prior nominalists. This principle is a certain theory of meaning, of meaning. Now let me just say a word about the meaning of meaning. The meaning of a term as that is used in philosophy, is what it stands for, what it communicates, what it refers to. A term or word or a phrase is said to be meaningful if it stands for something, if it has a referent, a referent, R-E-F-E-R-E-N-T, something that it stands for. Now, if I say, for instance, glass of water, I could point and say, there is the referent, that's what it stands for, and consequently the phrase glass of water is meaningful. On the other hand, if I say gloop and you say to me what does it stand for and I say it has no reference, it stands for nothing, then obviously it is meaningless. Now, if you are a sensualist, what reference can a term have? Obviously only two possibilities. Either a direct sense experience, a direct sense percept, or the fading image of one, that's all. Because that's the only kind of cognitive element we're ever in contact with. And so we have a simple test to determine if any word or phrase is meaningful. Every meaningful word or phrase must be such that one can either directly perceive its referent or else form an image of its referent. I'll repeat that for you. Every meaningful word or phrase must be such that one can either directly perceive its referent or else form an image of its referent. This is known as, sometimes called the empiricist theory of meaning but more properly called the sensualist theory of meaning. It's called the empiricist theory because all empiricists after Hume or almost all are sensualist. And therefore there's a very simple test. Somebody puts forward a word, you ask, can you perceive the referent? If the answer is no, can you form an image of the referent? If the answer is no, the word is noise. The word is like gloop. It's just simply empty sound, throw it up. Now you ask, can't a word stand for a concept as distinct from a percept or an image? And of course the answer is, on a sensualist philosophy there is no such thing as a concept distinct from a percept or an image. Percepts and images is all we can ever know, and therefore, since our words must have reference, they can only be meaningful if they refer to percepts or images. Now let me give you an example. Take such a phrase as spatial extension as apart now from color or tactile quality. In other words, think of it in the old sense of a primary quality, simply three-dimensionality. Can you have a percept of such spatial extension apart from color and so on? No, you can't. Can you form an image of it? Well, that's just the test we tried under Berkeley, and you can't, obviously then what conclusion will we come to? The phrase spatial extension is meaningless. It simply is noise. It's like the word gloop. It stands for nothing perceivable or imageable and therefore is noise. Now, I have heard this applied by modern followers of Hume, for instance, to such a concept as electron. You can't perceive it. You can't form an image of it, and I have heard ample number of modern physicists declare that the concept electron, if used to designate some alleged real particle that's out there but that can't be perceived or imaged, is simply meaningless noise. Now, it's more common for philosophers of science to say this than for physicists, but I've heard it from both. This is an application of Hume's theory of meaning. Now, please understand this. Hume is not simply saying that all meaningful terms must be based on observation. Aristotle, of course, would say that. But on Aristotle's view, you could get the concept of electron, for instance, from observation by a process of abstraction and reasoning. Hume is saying any meaningful term must stand directly for a percept or an image. There are no concepts apart from uh, percepts or images. Now this theory of meaning, this sensualist theory of meaning, is one of the most influential tenets on all 20th century philosophy, as those of you know who have taken any 20th century philosophy. And this theory of meaning was started in a major way by Hume. It represents the final outcome of nominalism and sensualism, and it's the key to the whole procedure of Hume's skepticism. His whole procedure is this. Every term he examines, he picks on some central philosophic term, and then he proceeds to ask, can you perceive its referent directly? You say no. Then he says, can you form an image of it? For instance, you can form an image of a golden mountain, so that's meaningful. But in the key terms that he produces, for analysis, you can't. Then he says, it's noise, it's meaningless, throw it out. And thus you get the philosophy, a consistent philosophy, a pretty consistent, of a creature devoid of the capacity to form concepts. Now because of Hume's influence, it became much more popular around mid-20th century philosophy, to denounce your opponent's ideas as f- meaningless instead of calling them false. You see, to say that an idea is meaningless is simply to dismiss it as even beneath falsehood. It's simply noise. If I come in the room and say, ish de triddle de glug glu, true or false, you'd say it's neither, it's just noise. In this respect, to say that your opponent's view is false is already thought by these people to be a compliment because you're at least saying his ideas are meaningful. They say something, even if false. Uh, The modern Humean viewpoint was, there was a big vogue of it, it's passing now, but there was a big vogue of simply dismissing every viewpoint as meaningless, and therefore you didn't even reach the question whether it was true or false. Now, some of them went so far as to say, I'm going now in the 20th century just to give you an idea of how far this can go, what do you mean by the word meaning or meaningful? Can you perceive a meaning? What color is it? Can you form an image of it? Well, then it must be meaningless. The word meaningful must be meaningless. Now that, you see, is as consistent as you can get. Now a gentleman in the 20th century named Wittgenstein wrote a whole book And at the end of it, he discovered that he had proved that he could not meaningfully say most of what he had said in the book by the very definition of meaning which he gave in the book. So he stopped. (laughs) And he ended his book on the sentence, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must remain silent. Now, in effect, he had a kind of mystic experience that certain things are meaningful and other things are not and uh, he couldn't proceed any further to put it into words. Now this has embarrassed many of his followers and they evade all over the place. Uh, That's beyond our scope now. That's the 20th century. Let's go back to Hume. Let us take some key terms and see if they can withstand the application of this Humean theory of meaning. And I'll take just one before the break and then several after. Let's take the expression external world or external reality and see if it has any meaning. Now you know that all philosophers prior to Hume or most of them believed that we do not directly perceive an external world. We only perceive our own experiences. We have no direct access to an external world but they believed it must exist as the cause of our experiences. That's the causal theory of perception, and Hume agrees we only directly experience our experiences. In this respect, he, like Berkeley and Locke, are all in the tradition of Descartes. But now, he says, let us apply the theory of meaning, given this premise, let us apply the theory of meaning to the phrase external world. What do people mean by the expression external world? Well, he says, they mean two things together. In one, the external world is supposed to be something apart from our experiences, something distinct from our experiences. And two, it's supposed to be something which continues in existence even when no one experiences it. So those are the two criteria of an external world, something distinct from our experience and something which is continuous, which goes on existing whether we experience it or not. That's what's meant in saying reality or the world is external to us. Now let's take each of these in turn. Can you perceive something distinct from your experiences? Perceive. Well, not if you accept Descartes' view that all you perceive is your experiences, obviously. You can only perceive your own experiences. You can't perceive something distinct from your experiences if you accept Descartes' and Locke's view. What then happens to the words distinct from experience? Since you don't perceive anything distinct from experience, the phrase distinct from experience has no referent. Nothing that you can perceive, it must become meaningless. What about the idea of continuity? of something existing when you are not perceiving it. Well, can you perceive something existing when you're not perceiving it? Obviously not. And of course, if you're perceiving something, you're perceiving it. So you're not perceiving it existing when you don't perceive it. Remember the lamppost and the drunk trying to find it. In other words, both of these terms end up as meaningless. We have no percept of something distinct from our experiences. We perceive only our experiences. We have no percept of something existing when we don't perceive it. We only perceive when we perceive. And therefore, perceptually, we have no referent for either ingredient of the phrase external world. But if we have no perceptual referent by the theory of meaning, the phrase is meaningless. And therefore, the phrase external world is simply noise. Simply noise. Now, if you try to answer Hume and say, but look, after all, inherent in the very concept of existence and consciousness is the distinctness and continuity of existence. And if you then proceed, look, existence exists. Consciousness is the faculty for perceiving it is A, the law of identity now just grasp these concepts and you will see you won't get any farther than that and who will say to you concepts what are you talking about all we have are percepts and images i don't perceive existence apart from consciousness and that's true you don't perceive when you're not perceiving consequently On nominalist grounds, Hume would refuse even to hear any such art. Now Hume asks himself, why is it, since uh, external world is a meaningless, fantastic idea, why do people think there is an external world? It's a fantastic belief from his point of view. There's more evidence for a Santa Claus on Hume's philosophy than there is for an external world. At least we see people dressed up as Santa Claus, but we never come into any contact with something distinct from our experience. His answer to why people entertain this fantastic hypothesis, fantastic in his opinion, is that our experiences seem to show a certain constancy. For instance, look at this lecture. Now look away for an instant, perhaps at your fingertip, uh, and then look back. Now if you don't pay strict attention, or blink your eyes and you get a sudden shot of blackness, you see, and then you open it again and see the lectern. If you don't pay strict attention to the procession of your experiences, to the fact that they're constantly interrupted, if uh, you don't focus on those interruptions, you will tend to glide from one frame to the next without grasping the cuts, the holes, the breaks from second to second. The result is, since we're all intellectually lazy, according to Hume, we tend to fill in the interval between these experiences. It isn't real to us that there are all these cuts, because we're too lazy. We imagine that the thing, the lectern, is still there between our experiences, and therefore that it is distinct from our experiences. But that's simply a product of what Hume calls our imaginations. Our imaginations are lazy. They have a tendency to fill in the gaps. They invent fictions. But, says Hume, my point is it is a fiction. If we go by direct experience, we have simply a series of discrete experiences and no evidence for continuing entities. The idea of an external world, in a word, is a meaningless myth. Now, before we do any more damage, let's take the break. All right, let us continue with Hume. Having gotten rid of the material world, clearly there can be no external material entities in the universe, no material substances in the traditional terminology. But Hume is not content with the attack I've given so far on material entities. He launches an independent one, and I now want to turn to this one. Do we, he asks, have any evidence of material entities or substances? He proceeds to answer no on the basis of Locke's premise. The scenario is always the same. You start with Locke and then show the disaster that follows. Locke had said a material entity is a collection or bundle of qualities of simple ideas inhering in a substratum. And the substratum was supposed to be what ties the qualities together, what makes it one unified entity. Otherwise Locke reasoned These self-contained qualities could exist by themselves and separate and uh, disintegrate. But we build up entities by recognizing that these uh, uh, independent qualities are kept together in a substratum of such a nature that I know not what it is. Barclay, if you recall, blasted this substratum as lacking any identity and therefore being out. Hume agrees, the substratum is gone. And of course, on this point, they're obviously correct. The, the, the destruction of the substratum idea is not an issue of being a nominalist or a sensualist. We don't even have any concept, let alone percept or image of the substratum. It has no identity at all. It's nothing in particular. So it's perfectly valid to reject it. Well, then, what would Hume say in answer to Locke's question, what does keep these bundle of qualities together? What is the thing that integrates qualities into entities? Why are there recurring combinations of identical qualities? Well, Barclay's answer was God arranges it that way. He feeds us our experiences in that order. In Hume, as you'll see, God is out. So he has a simple answer. If you are in a position where something is inexplicable, on your premises, simply deny it. Hume says there are no recurring bundles of the same qualities. In fact, the qualities constantly change partners, so we have no problem. There is, says Hume, no reason why the qualities that happen to go together now to make up what we call a material entity, a wristwatch or a cigarette or whichever, should not suddenly split apart, disintegrate, so that instead of an entity, we have merely a succession of disjointed separate qualities. You remember the example I gave you last week? Well, Hume would say, he didn't use that example, but he would say there's nothing to prevent the qualities that make up a cigarette from suddenly splitting apart from each other and showing up in different parts of this room. So that the white color might travel to the rear without tactile qualities, without temperature. And over here, where the type recorders are, would be the texture. A nice smooth texture, but you'd see nothing. And uh, over on my left, a hot burning point devoid of texture color etc now according to hume this state of affairs is perfectly possible what we call an entity is simply a cluster of independent qualities which happen to go along together for a while but they just happen to that's all we simply have a bundle of qualities a loose collection that can at any instant disintegrate and leave us in a universe of floating qualities without things or entities at all. Now, says Hume, this is not just a theoretical projection. It actually happens all the time. It's simply that people do not pay careful attention. We never perceive enduring entities, he says, only constantly shifting sets or bundles of qualities, constantly changing their partners. Suppose, for instance, I'm walking down the street looking at a building. Now, most people believe that this represents a certain enduring combination of qualities, that they can look at it, look away, look back, see the same set, the same size, the same shape, the same color, etc. Hume says if you go by actual experience, you don't see the same set of qualities each time. You see a new bundle each time you look. As you get closer, for instance, you see something bigger. The sun comes out. You see a different color. You get a different perspective. You see a somewhat different shape. You pass by under the building and look up, you see a radically different shape. Your eye goes up to the very top to the spire, and you get a completely different experience than when you were looking down at the base, etc. What we really experience, says Hume, is a succession of different bundles of qualities constantly changing. What we call the entity is really a loose collection of shifting qualities. Now, of course, you will want to object at once and say, isn't Hume confusing two entirely different things? The entity which endures, and our changing forms of perceiving it, our changing perspectives on it. And you will want to object, the entity is one thing, it is what it is, it's not affected by our varying perceptual conditions. And so you'd say all you have to do to answer human, discover a stable entity in reality, is abstract away from our changing experiences and form a concept. Of the entity as it is independent of our varying forms of perceiving. But of course if you said that to Hume you know that his sensualism would forbid it. Abstract away, he would say, form a concept, there are no such things. All we have, all we can know is the stream of sense data that goes by before our nose. Even our nose is a temporary union of sense data. If this stream constantly changes, If we don't sense an enduring entity, then there's no basis for an enduring entity. If we go by sense data alone, we must conclude there are no such entities. There's simply a heraclation flux of sense qualities, constantly changing, shifting, appearing, disappearing. What we really experience is a succession of different bundles, each closely related to the previous, of course, but nevertheless different. Therefore, we don't need a substratum to tie them together. What we call an entity is simply a name for a loose collection of qualities, constantly changing partners. Why do you have the illusion that you see the identical entity enduring across time? Because the various bundles, moment by moment, have a rough resemblance to each other. And again, you, your imagination, is lazy. It fills in the gaps. It doesn't pay any attention to the actual difference. It imagines that it sees the same enduring entity. But this is simply a reflection of the laziness of your imagination. Now I've indicated to you where Hume is wrong on this point and that if you're able to rise to the conceptual level you can defend the view of enduring entities apart from our changing perceptions. He is here drawing the final conclusions from Locke's viewpoint. But we still have Locke's original question to answer, so let's leave Hume for a moment. And Locke's question, if he heard this much, would be, well, why? What keeps the qualities of a thing together? After all, Locke would say, we directly perceive only these little atomic, simple qualities. Something must keep them together. And if it's not the I know, not what, what is it? Now, the answer is, That if you grant Locke's premise that what we directly perceive are these little atomic, self-contained qualities, you are in bad trouble. Then you do need a metaphysical glue to integrate them. But the thing is, you must contest Locke's premise. Now the truth is that we do not observe any such thing as atomic, self-contained, simple qualities. We do not observe loose collections of independent qualities at all. Now, if we're going to be empiricists, we should be honest empiricists. That is to say, true to the actual observed facts. And if we go by the actual observed facts, we will see that we directly observe entities, integrated entities. The separation from an entity of its various qualities is a work of analysis that human beings perform after they have first experienced the integrated entity. Now you consider an experience of an apple, for instance. Do you, as an adult, separately observe a simple redness and a roundness and a smoothness and a shininess, etc., etc., and then put them all together? No, you do not. You directly observe an apple, the integrated totality of these qualities. And only later, by an act of selective attention, can you focus on this quality or that one apart from the rest. The world of direct experience is a world of directly given entities. Individual qualities are not the starting points of experience. They are much later stages of abstraction from what we experience. And you must remember that an abstraction a mental separation cannot exist in reality apart from the thing which it's abstracted from. You can think of a certain quality apart from the others that it goes with in reality only by mentally ignoring its accompaniments. But you must remember that in reality it is inextricably connected to its accompaniments. Locke's procedure is therefore this. In actual fact, first he perceives the entity. Then he abstracts the quality. Then he makes his individual qualities, which in fact are separable only in thought, separable in reality. And then he has the impossible problem of trying to put them back together again. Now, the fact is that no glue and no unknowable substratum is necessary to preserve an integrated material entity. The qualities, to put it, simply do not have to be put back together because in reality they never were apart. Now, what caused Locke's confusion on this point? The answer is that Locke confused two different levels of consciousness that I haven't yet mentioned in this course, and because it's an important issue, I want to comment at least briefly. There are actually three different levels of human consciousness. We've been talking throughout this course of perception and conception, but it's time now to mention the third, namely sensation. And I want to distinguish, therefore, perception from sensation. The perceptual level of consciousness from the sensory level of consciousness. Now, as babies, at the beginning, it's true that we do start on the sensory level, which is the first chronologically, the lowest level of consciousness. We don't perceive entities or objects immediately as babies. We're merely bombarded with disconnected sensations. We reach the next stage of knowledge, the perceptual level, when our brain has learned to integrate this disconnected, unintelligible bombardment of sensations into solid, integrated entities. Apple, mother, bed, etc. That stage is the perceptual stage. And then we are ready after a certain accumulation of knowledge to pass on by a process of abstraction and concept formation to the conceptual stage. So Locke is right in one respect. At one point in the past, we did get from reality a disconnected bombardment of sensations. But the crucial thing is that we do not now get such a bombardment, and we cannot. If we are now conscious thinking men, to say nothing of philosophers, we start at the perceptual stage, at the stage of perceiving entities. We no longer experience the sensory stage. You now you might ask, "How do we even know then that it once existed?" And the answer is only by inference, by a process of complex reason. When we get to the conceptual stage, we discover that we have means of perception. We discover that certain information comes from our eyes and some from our fingertips and some from our ears and so on. And then we realize that at one time, as babies, we must have got a disconnected set of data that our brain had to learn to integrate. But we can't now experience that baby's disintegrated state. We can only infer that something like it must have existed. And the crucial point is our inference depends on and is based on and starts from our present perception of entities. So there are the three levels, the sensory, the perceptual, the conceptual. In the order of time, you have the sensory, then the perceptual, then the conceptual. But in terms of conscious experience, where we have to start as thinkers and philosophers, the first stage is the perceptual stage. Then. We simultaneously go forward to the conceptual stage and then, having developed a conceptual apparatus, we infer back to the existence of the sensory stage. But we can only infer back by abstracting from our perceptions, our perceptions of entities. In this sense, the existence and the direct perception of entities is a prerequisite of discovering the sensation stage. Now, you have to keep clearly in mind the difference between these three levels of consciousness and not confuse them. If you equate the perceptual with the sensory, then you are in Locke's position. You have a whole set of disjointed sensations and you need some unintelligible glue to stick them together. If you equate the conceptual with the perceptual, then you are in the nominal essentialist position. And you know the catastrophe implicit in that. And if you do both of those things so that the conceptual equals the perceptual equals the sensational, then you are in Hume's position. You are left literally in the state of a newborn babe or a low insect. I say low because the higher animals at least have the uh, the perceptual level. You are left in the stage where you are bombarded with disconnected sensations, unable to integrate them into entities, unable to form concepts lost in a hopeless, chaotic, unintelligible, disconnected jumble, namely the universe of Hume. In this respect, Hume represents the absolute disintegration of human consciousness into atomic, disconnected sensations. Well, so much for what is wrong with Hume on this point. We've been talking so far about material entities. What is Hume's view of spiritual entities, of the soul, the mind, the self? Well, Barclay, as you know, had also gotten rid of material entities, but he had clung to the self. The thing which does the thinking, has the experiences, and so on. And he had claimed to have a notion of that, even if not an idea. Well, Hume does not have Barclay's religious axe to grind. So he proceeds to demolish the self as easily as he demolished the material entities given Locke's premises. Hume simply asks, what is this self that everyone is talking about? Let me introspect and see if I can find it. Now what is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be something distinct from my experiences, from my wishes, my thoughts, my beliefs. It's supposed to be that which has the experiences, that which does the thinking, does the wishing, does the belief. And it's supposed to be something unchanging, something which remains the same and constitutes our personal identity. After all, our thoughts, our experience, our emotions, our mental content constantly changes but the basic I or ego or self is supposed to be unchanging. Well, let me see if I can catch it perceptually, says Hume. And now I quote you his report on his introspective hunt for the self. Quote, For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never can catch myself at any time without a perception, and never can observe anything but the perception. If anyone, upon serious and unprejudiced reflection, thinks he has a different notion of himself, I must confess I can reason no longer with him. All I can allow him is, and this, of course, is sarcasm on his part, all I can allow him is that he may be right as well as I, and that we are essentially different in this respect. He may perhaps perceive something simple and continued, which he calls himself, but I am sure there is no such principle in me. But setting aside some metaphysicians of this kind, I may venture to affirm of the rest of mankind that they are nothing but a bundle or collection of different perceptions which succeed each other with an inconceivable rapidity and are in a perpetual flux and movement unquote that is the famous passage in which Hume proposes to demolish the self the word self is a meaningless term because it stands for nothing we can experience when we perceive introspectively all we perceive as a collection of individual experiences, thoughts, feelings, etc. We have no contact, says Hume, with an unchanging I underneath all of these experiences, which has them. And therefore, there is no meaning in referring to such an I or self. No perceptual referent, no image, meaningless. Personal identity is therefore a myth. I am a flux of ever-changing experiences, and so are you. We are each a bundle of experiences. This is sometimes called the bundle theory of the self. Now again, what is the explanation for the belief in this myth? Well, it's our imaginations which delude us. Because one state of consciousness merges smoothly into the next, There are always great resemblances between the content of your consciousness at any one instant and its content at the next instant. And therefore, we don't pay attention to the differences. Our imagination smooths things over by inventing the fiction of an enduring self-same entity or self. But this is a fiction. If you attend closely, introspectively, you see only a succession of different states, different psychological states. That's all. You're just a loose bundle, psychologically. Well, what's wrong with this one? Well, of course, the objections to it are legion. I can't resist pointing out the stolen concept. Did you hear his formulation? When I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble... I do all these things and there is no I. He's using the self to deny the self. But what's the basic error? Again, it is his sensualism and nominalism. What, after all, is the self? I'm here now speaking from the point of view of objectivism. The self is your consciousness, your faculty of awareness, the entity which perceives reality. Why can't Hume find it? What does he want? Well, since he's a sensualist, he's upset that he never finds a percept of pure consciousness. He always finds consciousness of this or that content. He never perceives consciousness except with some content. And since the content is always changing, he bewails the fact that he never perceives an unchanging pure consciousness. Well, what does he want? to perceive consciousness without any content. Well, of course, you're never going to do that. By the very nature of consciousness, consciousness is the faculty for perceiving something, for perceiving some content, some object. A consciousness without a content, a consciousness conscious of nothing, is literally a contradiction in terms. Now, how, in fact, do we arrive at the awareness of our consciousness or self as distinct from its changing contents. Again, only conceptually, by a process of abstraction. We abstract away the various contents and focus simply on the fact of conceptual awareness, the entity which is consciousness. In other words, we ignore the contents and arrive at an awareness of our faculty of consciousness as such, that which does the thinking, makes the connections, feels the emotions, etc., But consciousness, of course, can't exist in fact except as consciousness of something. And so you cannot perceive consciousness except perceiving it as consciousness of something. Now, if, like Hume, you deny the conceptual level, you will, of course, never find an enduring self-same consciousness or self. You'll find only a string of conscious experiences. You'll always catch consciousness occupied with some content or other. And since the content is always changing, you will moan, where is the unchanging I? Where is my personal identity amidst all this flux? When the fact is that it is really very simple. It's easy. You do directly experience your I, your consciousness. But in order to identify it and defend its existence, you must reach the conceptual level to which human principle never ascended. Well, where are we now? What do we have in Hume's universe? We have a bundle of impressions or experiences, images and so on. Impressions of what? Nothing. External world is a myth. Experiences experienced by whom? Nobody. The self is a myth. Now, you might think this is as far as we can go in skepticism, impressions of nothing by nobody. But there is more to go yet. There's one very famous and incredibly influential point of Hume's that is almost universally accepted today by philosophers. There is still one more link tying the world or tying experiences together, which must be shattered if we're to end up with a real poached egg mentality and that is the law of cause and effect. Remember, Barclay had believed in cause and effect, coming from God. Hobbes had believed in cause and effect. Every major philosopher prior to Hume believed in cause and effect. Hume now sets his nominalism and sensualism to work to demolish cause and effect too. So now we'll look at Hume's greatest, quote, achievement, his destruction of the law of cause and effect. Well, again, we follow the standard procedure. Let's take the term "cause." What does it mean? We say A causes B. Take a classic simple example. We take a rock and throw it at a window. The window shatters. We say the rock caused the window to break. What does it mean to say one thing caused another? Well, says Hume, people think that there are three points involved two of them, as we'll see, are okay. One, the vital one, proves to be meaningless. Well, one thing involved in the causal relationship is spatial contiguity. Togetherness in space. The rock actually touches the window, for instance, in the process of it breaking. Well, that's very simple. We can see the two of them in direct physical contact. So we have a direct perceptual reference for the phrase spatial contiguity or spatial togetherness, and therefore that's perfectly meaningful. But that, of course, is not enough. Causal relationship also involves temporal contiguity. The window breaks immediately after, in time, the rock strikes. And again, says Hume, that's a perfectly respectable phrase, temporal contiguity, because... We can observe one thing happening immediately after another in time, and therefore that is perfectly meaningful. But spatial and temporal contiguity, after all, do not yet give us the essence of the causal relationship. A coincidence can have these two characteristics. For instance, suppose I casually touch this lectern, and while I'm in direct contact with it spatially, at the next instant it suddenly gives off i don't know 13 bombs and the whole room and whole building come down well you would say maybe the two events were spatially and temporally connected but that simply is a coincidence there's no causal connection maybe someone in the next room let off a bomb at the same instant what is the crucial factor the vital ingredient in the concept of causal connection well says hume it is necessary connection not only spatial and temporal contiguity but necessary connection when we say A causes B we mean more than simply the two go together in space and the two go together in time we mean that the first necessitates the second that the two have a compulsory connection to each other that granted the first the second must happen that the first produces the second that the first makes the second happen, etc. All those being synonyms for necessary connection. Well, now let us put this strand, necessary connection, to the test of the theory of meaning. Do we ever perceive or form an image of necessary connection between events? Now watch it very closely. I don't have a window here to demonstrate but you just have to project that I take a rock and I throw it at the window you see the rock sailing slowly across the room then you see now you can stand there you right next to the wall with a magnifying glass to watch you see the rock moving touch the window so far there's no necessity there's just a rock, right? the next thing you see the fragment shatter, right? now no little flag came out and said the next event is unavoidable there was no booming voice from the sky that said what comes now has to be there was no Doris Day saying que sera, sera <laughs> we perceive that two events go together in space and time that's all we never come in contact with any such phenomenon as necessity what is necessity like? is it red? is it loud? is it hot? Well, can you form an image of it? What does it look like? What would it taste like? Obviously, we cannot form a percept of necessity. We cannot form an image of necessity. It must, therefore, be an utterly meaningless term. The phrase necessary connection must be just noise, like gloop. And so, of course, must any of its synonyms. A synonym of nonsense is nonsense. And therefore, when you say one thing produces another or makes it happen, or given the first, the second must happen, all of those are equally meaningless. Now let's have Hume speak for himself on this. Quote, First, he states his nominalism and sensualism. Quote, It seems a proposition which will not admit of much dispute that all our ideas are nothing but copies of our impressions. That's his sensualism. You see, an idea is simply a faded copy of your sense experience. To be fully, I'm continuing the quote, to be fully acquainted, therefore, with the idea of necessary connection, let us examine its impression. And in order to find the impression with greater certainty, let us search for it in all the sources from which it may possibly be derived. Now, unquote. Now he conducts a scrupulous search all over the place, looking for necessary connection if only he could find it. And I quote, when we look about us towards external objects and consider the operation of causes, we are never able in a single instance to discover any power or necessary connection. Any quality which binds the effect to the cause and renders the one an infallible consequence of the other. We only find that the one does actually, in fact, follow the other. There is not in any single particular instance of cause and effect anything which can suggest the idea of necessary connection. Unquote. Well, if an idea is a name for a fading experience, a copy of an experience, and there is no experience of necessary connection, there is no idea of necessary connection, the phrase must be meaningless. When, therefore, you take a knife and put it in somebody's heart and twist it, one event is observing the knife go in, and the next event is you see the man turn pale and lie down on the ground. And those are two events that are spatially and temporally contiguous, and that's it. You cannot say one made the other happen. All you have a right to assert, in fact, the only thing that is meaningful to assert is that the two events go together in space and time. You observe that one is right next to the other, that one is right after the other, but you can't observe that one is because of the other. And, of course, that's right, you can't observe the causality. Well, why do you think that there is a necessary relationship? If, in fact, this is a myth. Again, because you have an overactive imagination. In this case, you have a hyperactive associative mechanism. Two events, which in fact have no necessary connection, or if it would be meaningless to say so, two events happen by chance to go together so many times in your experience that after a while you form the habit simply by custom, by conditioning, to expect the second when you encounter the first. That is the source of the irrational idea of necessary connection. You observe, says Hume, repeated conjunctions repeated conjunctions two events which happen to go together repeatedly and you begin to associate the two and expect the second after the first for instance suppose you were brought up by an irrational mother and uh, for no reason at all every morning when you sat down by breakfast uh, at breakfast to drink a glass of orange juice just as you picked the glass of orange juice up she had a huge strap and she smashed the kitchen table with them. Now, and this happened day after day. There's no causal connection, but that's just the kind of mother you have. (laughs) After a while, as you pick up the oranges, you flinch in the expectation of the strap, and you come to associate the two, you see, simply by quantity of repetition. Well, Hume says, this is exactly the relationship in every case where we assert cause and effect. That's not his example. (laughs) Causality is simply a subjective expectation on our part, completely irrational without any justification. You can use the word cause if you want, but then all it means is two events are repeatedly conjoined up to now in our experience, and we therefore have the accompanying irrational, baseless expectation that there's some connection between them. But in fact, there is no uh, connection i think i have one more quote from hume on this quote a famous conclusion all events seem entirely loose and separate loose and separate one event follows another but we never can observe any tie between them they seem conjoined but never connected And as we have no idea of anything which never appeared to our senses, the conclusion seems to be that we have no idea of connection at all, and that this word is absolutely without any meaning when employed either in philosophical reasoning or common life. Unquote. That's uncompromising Humean statement. Now, suppose you contest this and say, oh, that's ridiculous, causality is not simply a matter of habit. Causal sequences are necessary. Their opposites are literally inconceivable. We couldn't even imagine their opposites happening. Hume comes back with a famous example. He says you can't, you can perfectly well imagine the opposite happening. He gives the example of Adam. Of course, he doesn't believe in Adam. He doesn't believe in anything. But it's just as an example of the first man. Now Adam across the garden sees a flame is Adam able to know before he experiences the behavior of the flame that the flame is going to consume him if he puts his hand into it no he says Adam hasn't the faintest idea how this orange tongue that's flickering is going to behave when he puts his hand into it prior to experience if we asked Adam is it going to make you six feet taller, burn your hand off, or turn you into a pumpkin, Adam would say, I haven't a clue. Well, says Hume, what has he got after experience? After experience, he's got a burned hand. But he doesn't have any more understanding of why this took place. As far as he can see, the fire could just as well have turned him into ice or into a pumpkin. In other words, it simply is a matter of brute fact that it happens to be the case that fire up to now burns or warms. But it's unintelligible why this is so, and we can easily conceive the opposite. Now, if someone were to say that we can explain by reference to scientific law why fire does what it does, Hume would say scientific law? Scientific law is based on cause and effect, Cause and effect depends on necessary connection, and that's meaningless, so much for scientific laws. All we do is we let our familiarity with certain arbitrary sequences delude us into thinking that the connection is intelligible when actually it's completely unintelligible. Well, suppose you try to give Hume a proof in logic that every event must have a cause that necessitates it. Well, Hume says, go ahead and try. And I'll show you that you can't give me any such proof. Is your proof going to rely on reason, he says. You answer, well, certainly. I'm going to give a rational proof. Well, says Hume, by reason we can only prove truths whose opposites would be contradictory, logical contradictions. Reason teaches us that we have to believe something because the opposite would be a contradiction. So we can prove that two and two is four because if somebody denied it, we could show him he was contradicting himself. Now, anything which is a contradiction is inconceivable. You can't conceive a round square, for instance, because the two sides annihilate each other. Now, is there any difficulty in conceiving that the law of cause and effect is false? Would any contradiction be involved, he asks, in conceiving it? No. The opposite of the law of cause and effect, he says, is perfectly conceivable. It's easy to understand. It's not like a round square which obliterates it itself. It's perfectly conceivable. Take the idea there are events which don't have any causes. Now, if this was a contradiction, we shouldn't even be able to grasp it. It should be like married bachelors. But, says Hume, there's no difficulty in grasping this. Just imagine, I'm making up the example, but this is his idea. Imagine you're walking down the street, and suddenly an apple pops into existence out of thin air. Nothing preceded it. It's not a a hallucination. It just is there without any cause. Walt Disney could draw it. Now, says Hume, this is perfectly conceivable. There's no contradiction in it. If there were a contradiction, you couldn't conceive it, but you understood my story, so you must be able to conceive it. Whereas if I said a round square popped out, you'd say, I don't know what that is. If it's conceivable, there's no contradiction. If there's no contradiction, reason can't prove it. Reason only proves something whose opposite is a contradiction. Therefore, the law of cause and effect cannot be proved since it can't be proved in reason and we know there's no basis for it in reference to experience we conclude the law of cause and effect is bereft of any foundation of any kind in reason or in experience it is therefore simply a myth now of course the objections to this Humean viewpoint are legion since this is the Last time I'll get my licks in and Hume might keep interrupting each point because I can't put it off anymore, the course having running out. Um, But let me just indicate briefly. Notice that Hume assumes that if he can visualize an event that takes place allegedly without a cause, that that's the same as saying he conceives it without contradiction. Now, of course, if Aristotle heard this, argument, he would say, you are visualizing an event which implies a contradiction, and therefore you are actually conceiving nothing but an irrational figment of your own imagination. You have an image, but not a logical concept. What would Hume's answer be if he heard that? What's the difference? An image is a concept. If I can form an image of something, I've formed a concept of it. That, of course, is his nominalism. Concept is an image. So if you can form an image, you can form a concept. And if you can form a concept, then it's obviously logically possible. Therefore, if you can form an image, any arbitrary fantastic image, the thing it stands for is logically possible. That is the end result of reducing concepts to images the way the nominalists do. Now, you might think you would satisfy Hume if you gave him the proof of cause and effect that we developed from Aristotle's philosophy. You remember the argument which had essentially two premises. Actions are actions of entities, and entities have identity. They are what they are, the law of identity, and therefore, to make a long story short, they can only act in accordance with their nature. Now, if you were to reincarnate David Hume, and give him this argument, he wouldn't bat an eye or turn a hair. Because observe each premise. Entities. He would say, what is that? All we have are loose floating bundles of qualities. And that's all that he as a nominal essentialist can encounter. And therefore the premise about entities existing is already out. Out and so is therefore the base of any proof of cause and effect, given his nominalism. And as for the law of identity, is that supposed to be a necessary general truth? Well then, as a nominalist, that of course must be. Linguistic, semantic, just the way you use words, it doesn't say anything. Now, you see, in other words, causality already comes fairly far down in philosophy. You, first of all, have to have the conceptual level to validate your knowledge of anything including of causality so there's actually nothing new to answer in Hume's attack on cause and effect if you can answer his nominalism and sensualism if you can defend a valid theory of concepts then his whole attack on cause and effect crashes to the ground along with the whole rest of his philosophy and of course if you cannot answer his nominalism and sensualism then you are lost and everything is lost And you see, again, the crucial importance of a valid theory of concept. In any event, for Hume, the collapse of cause and effect leads to overwhelming, insoluble problems. It leads him to complete and total skepticism. Because if there is no cause and effect, how can we predict the future? How can we generalize? How can we say that because things have happened a certain way in the past, therefore they will happen that way in the future? How can we ever formulate scientific laws? How can we even have science? To all of which Hume's answer is, you can't. We have, he says, no reason on earth to assume that nature follows law. We have no reason to assume that nature is uniform. We have no reason to assume that the future will be like the past. This is known as the problem of induction. And the problem of induction is what makes you think that because something has happened a certain way repeatedly in the past, it will therefore happen that way in the future. Now, of course, if there are necessary connections in reality, if there are actual laws which nature must obey, then you can validly generalize from experience under the appropriate circumstances. But if you destroy causality and you reduce it, nature to simply unintelligible, brute conjunction of events without any necessity, then anything is possible at the next instant. And uh, the fact that something has happened a thousand times proves nothing about the future. It's simply been a run of coincidence now people often misunderstand hume and they think uh, he is saying well you can never be certain about the future you can only have a degree of probability he goes much beyond that he says you can't even have the faintest trace of probability with regard to the future every occurrence is a brand new event all events are loose and separate There is no necessity about any conjunction of events, and therefore you haven't the slightest reason, he says, to assume that the future will resemble the past in any respect. If I throw a penny up in the air, now up to now, the penny has come down. And you might be inclined to say, well, there's a good chance it'll come down again. But of course, in Hume's philosophy, there's only one chance in infinity that it will come down it might just stand still it might go straight up it might turn into hegel (laughs) it might become a quarter it could do anything now you say but it's become it's come down so many times in the past well i've heard Humeans say that just goes to show that we have had such a run of good luck that we shouldn't expect it to continue That's known as the problem of induction. Well, we've reached a total dead end, an absolutely shattered universe. We have loosely floating qualities, no entities, no reality, no self, no causality, everything a brute contingent fact. Now let's mop up some final points. Is there any necessary knowledge, according to Hume? anything we can know as as necessary. Yes, he says, but not matters of fact. Not matters of fact. Anything which talks about the way things actually are, any factual statement is contingent. We derive it from experience. It is empirical. A posteriori, using the term I introduced last time, which means dependent on experience. Well, then where do we get Necessary knowledge of, only in what Hume calls relations of ideas. If I utter the statement bachelors are male, I can know that that has to be true. Because, says Hume, it is a matter of definition. I define bachelor as an entity, one of whose characteristics is being male. And therefore this is a necessary truth. I can count on it but it doesn't tell me anything about facts. It would be true even if there are no bachelors. It's necessary simply because we make it so by our arbitrary nominalistic definitions. If it stated an actual fact of reality, he would say, how would you ever know it is necessary? Therefore, this kind of truth, the so-called relations of ideas, we arrive at by reason or thought or analysis. In their case, the opposite would be a contradiction. They are learned by definition, not by experience. They are so-called a priori. And so we have the standard dichotomy that we have seen in so many different forms. As it exists in Hume, the linguistic truths versus the existential, Or factual truths, the logical truths versus the factual truths, the truths of reason, which are necessary but detached from reality, and the truths of experience, which pertain to fact but are uh, contingent. You see, this is a variant of the standard dichotomy, and this is what what Kant then picked up and called the analytic truths versus the synthetic, the analytic being the ones you arrive at by analysis, the logical truths so-called, and the synthetic being the ones that tell you actual empirical information. Now, given this, which is therefore not original with Hume, what happens to metaphysics if you accept this dichotomy of uh, the necessary relations of ideas which are linguistic versus the contingent, factual, empirical truths. Well, is metaphysics supposed to be factual? Well, the advocates of metaphysics say certainly. Metaphysics tells you facts about reality. Well, if it's factual, it has to be empirical. Is metaphysics supposed to therefore tell you simply contingent, empirical hypotheses? No, the advocates of metaphysical principles, like cause and effect, for instance, say they are necessary. Well, there's no such possibility as a factual, necessary truth. If it's necessary, it's simply linguistic. If it's factual, it is not necessary. Is metaphysics supposed to be linguistic? No, say it's advocates. Is metaphysics supposed to be contingent then? No, say it's advocates. Well then, says Hume, metaphysics as such is out into the fire with it. There is no room for any such subject. If you come and say to Hume, but what about existence exists? A is A. Consciousness is the faculty for perceiving reality. Every event has a cause. He would say to you, do you mean those propositions as expression of your arbitrary linguistic usage? You would say, certainly not. I mean those to be facts of reality. He would say... Did you arrive at them by sensory perception and do you regard them as simply contingent truths? You say, certainly not. Those are laws and principles of reality. Say, no such category. It's either a subjective relation of ideas or it is a brute contingent sensualist type fact. Therefore, as far as metaphysics is concerned, throw it into the fire. Uh, a a viewpoint echoed in the 20th century by many schools who are simply neo-Humean. The upshot in Hume's viewpoint is this. If you are certain about a proposition, if you understand why it must be true, if it's really reliable, it's detached from reality. And on the other hand, if it has something to say about the real world, you can't be certain about it and you can't make any sense of it. If you know it must be true, then it's not about the world. It says nothing about facts, it just expresses linguistic conventions. If it says something about facts, then it is contingent, uncertain, unreliable. If you prove it by experience, it's contingent and unreliable. If you prove it by logic, it simply is an arbitrary convention. So you're trapped either way. You cannot win. You end up in a complete skepticism. Now let us look briefly at some final topics from Hume, which we can race through briefly because the essence of his philosophy you now know. Hume on God. Well, of course, God cannot survive on a Humean philosophy. God is supposed to be a spiritual substance who is the cause of the world. Well... Every item in that statement is gone. There is no world, no spiritual substance, and no causality. And consequently, God is out. And Hume takes great delight in demolishing God. He's particularly interested in the argument from design. You know, the Reader's Digest teleological argument. And he loves to take on religious people and make mincemeat of their viewpoint. Now, there are passages in Hume which indicate that religion is still a sensitive subject, in his opinion, and that he is loath to come out as a complete atheist. But obviously, any belief in God would be completely incompatible with his philosophy. In essence, his view would be that God, as a term, is radically different from anything a sensualist can come in contact with. And therefore, it's simply a meaningless uh, noise. And therefore, Hume is essentially anti-religious. If you read his detailed arguments, I may say you would find them a mixture of astute objections. He's a fairly good polemicist, but he's always a Humean, and to untangle his good objections from his crazy Humeanism, which are all mashed together, uh, it's easier to refute God on your own without help from Hume. Uh, now, uh, the effects of Hume's assault on God... Uh, were that, uh, combined with other influences, he was only one, but he contributed heavily to the fact that after this period, no influential philosopher again attempted to prove the existence of God in reason. Kant was very religious, but he did not think you could prove God in reason. Hegel, well, Hegel is Hegel, (laughs) and his God is hardly the same as anybody else's God. Uh, Nietzsche said correctly in the 19th century God is dead, meaning religion was a dead issue and in the 20th century one whole school derivative from Hume and Kant, says that God is simply a noise uh, like gloop it stands for nothing at all and another school says that uh, if you do believe in God you have to go by absurd feelings because God is not graspable by reason so God never survived the 18th century Philosophically, He never again had the importance that he did in Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Locke, uh, Barclay. Now there are people who think that this is good and that Hume has done a great service combined with a few other philosophers in getting rid of God. I would not agree with that. Because as an objectivist I would say the concept of God is bad because it is anti-reason And anti-reality. But in Hume, God is thrown out along with reason and reality on the same grounds. And this is a very, very bad mixture. Now, I remember once talking to a brash sophomore. This was, oh, 20 years ago. And I asked him if he believed in God. And he said, of course not. God doesn't exist. Nothing does. Now that is the Humean mentality, and uh, it helps to explain to you why it is a mistake to call objectivism atheism. Objectivists are atheists. We deny the existence of God, but all sorts of people deny the existence of God, including Hume and the communists for different reasons. And therefore, to know that somebody is an atheist is to tell you nothing about the essence of his uh, philosophy it simply tells you that there is one aberration he did not commit but that leaves open a terrific field <laughs> now on ethics to say a, a word about hume's view on that question it should be obvious that his ethics is compatible with the rest of his philosophy in other words it is a thoroughly skeptical subjectivist ethics The question he raises is, how can you ever defend an ethical or evaluative proposition? If we have to base everything on experience, experience only tells us what is the case. How do we ever get a knowledge of what ought to be the case? Did you ever touch a desirability? Did you ever smell a goodness obviously, valued terms you cannot grasp or imbibe through the senses or images. And if that is our only means of cognition, there is obviously no way to validate value premises. So here we have the old problem of deriving values from facts. Uh, And of course, Hume declares it can't be done. In fact, there's a parallel here. Just as he claims you can't get a must out of an is, you can't get a necessary connection out of a fact, so he says you can't get an evaluation out of an is you can't get an ought out of it is you can't get a value out of a fact and therefore value judgments are gratuitously arbitrary in their foundation no rational ethics is possible ethics must begin with subjective desires and feelings And when we say something is right or some equivalent valued term, we ultimately must mean that is what we desire. Ethics is a matter of feeling. Reason, therefore, says Hume, is and must be a slave of the passions. In other words, we have, again, essentially the sophist viewpoint in ethics. Now, there's nothing new, therefore, in his ethics. It's the same skepticism as in the rest of his philosophy. And the answer to his specific charge that you cannot get values out of fact is contained. Well, it's contained in Galt's speech, and it's also in the uh, Objectivist Ethics, the essay by Ms. Rand. so I won't comment on that further. To summarize Hume's philosophy, I think the best thing is to let him summarize it. This is a quote from him in which he expresses his arch skepticism. Quote, I read you these because they're famous and explicit. And because he's British, they're intelligible. Quote, Tis not solely in poetry and music we must follow our taste and sentiment, but likewise in philosophy. When I am convinced of any principle, tis only an idea which strikes more strongly upon me. When I give the preference to one set of arguments above another, I do nothing but decide from my feeling concerning the superiority of their influence. Objects have no discoverable connection together, nor is it from any other principle but custom operating upon the imagination that we can draw any inference from the appearance of one to the existence of another. Unquote. In other words nobody can know anything. This is arch, complete skepticism, absolute bankruptcy, philosophy, idea, science, theory. is all a matter of taste and feeling. Now you say you can't live by this philosophy, and you think that that is an objection to Hume. Well, you may or may not be surprised to know that Hume agrees with you. He says quite explicitly, no, you cannot live by this philosophy. He says uh, in a famous passage, which I won't take the time to read, but what it amounts to is that he writes this material showing that external world is meaningless and self is meaningless and causality is meaningless and so on. Then he says he leaves his writing and he goes and dines with friends. He plays a game of backgammon. He uses that example. And he lives in the normal world with everybody else. And then he says he comes back and reads what he wrote. And it seems to him so strained and ridiculous he wants to throw it all out. But he can't find anything wrong with it. What is his solution to this dilemma? The solution, he says, is skepticism is a disease that comes from living by reason. And the only way out is simply pay no attention to the conclusions of reason. Quote, this skeptical doubt, both with respect to reason and the senses, is a malady which can never be radically cured, but must return upon us every moment, however we may chase it away. Carelessness and inattention, carelessness and inattention alone can afford us any remedy. For this reason, I rely entirely upon them and take it for granted whatever may be the reader's opinion at this present moment, that an hour hence he will be persuaded that there is both an external and internal world. You get the idea. In other words, you cannot live by philosophy. You have to be careless and inattentive to it because you can't live by reason. And you do not have to. Because we are not only rational creatures, we are also natural creatures which means we have instincts, we have imaginations, we have feelings. And our feelings and imaginations and instincts will invent the fictions we need and will take us through life prosperously as long as we pay no attention to reason and philosophy. If you think you've got a reason for believing what you do, you haven't. Your actual the actual, I can't even say cause, because there are no causes, but the actual something or other of your beliefs is simply instinct. Quote, famous line of Hume, if we believe that fire warms or water refreshes, tis only because it costs us too much pains to think otherwise. Unquote. Now, it's just a pragmatic matter of instinct. In other words, in the last analysis, Irrational, unphilosophical, unthinking, blind instinct is superior to reason, thought, and philosophy. That's the final upshot of Hume's philosophy. Reason is impotent. Nobody can know anything. Reason can't give you a knowledge of reality. External reality is a myth. Entities are a myth. The self is a myth. Cause and effect is a myth. Logic is a subjective construction. Nobody has any reason to believe anything. You can live only if you ignore reason and function by irrational instinct. Only if you throw reason and philosophy into the fire and follow your irrational passions. Now you see, this is the end result of trying to philosophize, having invalidated the conceptual faculty. And one of two things had to happen at this point. Either a champion of reason in a valid sense had to appear, somebody who finally validated man's conceptual faculty or the arch destroyer of all time would appear and put the final seal on man's philosophic demise and the second of course is what happened the man who came on the scene right after hume who set himself the task of answering Hume, who said he was going to avoid the floating constructs of the rationalists and the skepticism of the empiricists That man was Kant. And of course, in the process of giving his answers to these schools, he once and for all removed reason from the philosophic scene altogether. That, however, is the story for another course, not this one. We have now traced the story from Greece, beginning with Thales and his friends eagerly trying for the first time to probe into the nature of reality. And we have gone now all the way through David Hume, where the attempt finally collapses with a sickening whimper. And on this uh, melancholy and even disastrous note, we have to conclude our presentation of the founders of Western philosophy from Thales to Hume. Now, next week, I offer you a final ray of sunshine so as not to leave you in the depressed state that you are probably now in, namely the objectivist answer to some of the key problems that we have postponed discussing so far. For tonight, that's it. Thank you very much. You said Kant removed reason from the scene altogether. It's hard to see how he could have removed it further than Hume. Could you sketch out how he did it? Well, it's a good question, but I don't know how to answer it briefly. Hume still has, operating in his mind, the idea that reason would be, or consciousness would be, the faculty for grasping existence. Only it happens that he doesn't believe in existence or think we can grasp it. But at least he represents the last ray of the idea that if there were reason, it would consist of grasping existence. Kant denies that completely. He turns reason into a faculty which creates existence, at least the existence that we actually live in, and therefore, corrodes and corrupts human epistemology much more deeply than Hume does. A skeptic simply says, I don't know. Kant goes much further and says, I do know, and what knowing consists of is creating, by means of a collective human-wide delusion, a made-up mythical world which we live in. That's much worse than Hume, but if that isn't clear to you, you have to study Kant, and even then. (laughs) another question how could Hume ask can we conceive the opposite of the law of cause and effect since it is a conception and it would be meaningless to begin with no, the answer is by concept he would mean form an image of can you form an image of the opposite of cause and effect and he and his followers would say yes you could you can form an image of an event without a cause namely the, for instance the apple I mentioned uh, during the lecture and as long as you could image it for them that's forming a concept of it according another one according to Berkeley how can God exist independent of his being perceived well I left out one point for Berkeley there's two ways to exist if it's a soul or a mind its existence doesn't consist of its being perceived but of its actually being capable of perceiving so in its case, S A S to be is to perceive. And since God perceives, since he has experiences and ideas and so on, he exists in the way that a mind or soul exists as a perceiving entity. Question. How would Hume deal with 100% predictability? For instance, a certain mass of rock thrown with a certain force will always break a window made a certain way. Hume would say you have no way whatever of knowing this. All you would know is that up to now that kind of rock has behaved this way, but you haven't got one reason in a million to believe that it's going to behave that way in the future. So he would simply say, I don't account for 100% predictability. There is no even 1% predictability. Of course, he's wrong, but that's what he would say. Uh, Let me see what I can extract from all of these. Is the issue of meaningful versus meaningless terms as used by philosophers valid? I.e., is the standard of the existence of a referent for meaningfulness valid? Well, here you have to untangle many things, but to be brief. Yes, certainly, a meaningful term has to stand for something. In that respect, it must have a referent. That's correct, otherwise it would stand for nothing, it would be meaningless. But the crucial point is the referent does not have to be perceivable as long as it is conceivable. In other words, in a valid philosophy, a term is meaningful if it stands for something to which the human mind can have cognitive contact or relationship. But that contact does not have to be restricted to sense, perception or images. There are many things that we cannot know by direct perception, which we can know by conceptual means. Concepts, of course, being themselves ultimately derived from percepts, but not being the same as percepts. And in this respect, I would say a term is meaningful if it has a referent, which is either perceivable or conceptually definable. As to the broader issue, no, I do not believe that the criterion of meaning if you want it more specific than what I've just given you, is a valid philosophic question. It's a question which arose only under the influx of a wave of nominalism and sensualism, which led philosophers to the conclusion that three-quarters, if not more, of the issues that had traditionally been discussed were meaningless. And so they got off on this wild kick of what does meaningfulness consist of and forgot about the questions. As an objectivist, I take the view that the definition of meaningfulness beyond the brief account I gave you here is not a legitimate philosophic question. If a statement does not consist of undefined terms or does not violate the term the laws of grammar, it is meaningful. Uh, if you say the cow and up, that's meaningless. If you say the gloop hit the triddle, that's meaningless. But if you say, the cow hit the frying pan, that is meaningful (laughs) because the terms are defined and the grammar is English or whatever language you're speaking. It is not the province of philosophers to become lexicographers contrary to modern trends. Um, Just give me a second to look at some of these. By Hume's premises, How can our past experiences cause us to form a habit and hence arrive at our false idea of cause? A good question. No answer to it. Hume throughout gives causal explanations, alleged causal explanations, of our false beliefs, our belief in entities and the self and the external world and so on. Having denied causality, he has no business giving such explanations, a point which is commonly made in polemics against him. And therefore he has to say that our belief in causality, if he's consistent, like causality itself, is an, uh, or like any uh, uh, phenomenon of the world, is simply an inexplicable, brute, unintelligible, contingent fact which he can't make a head or tail of and in falling into the tendency to give a causal explanation of our mistaken belief in causality, he is using causality while denying it and thereby contradicting his own philosophy. Question, do you recognize any validity in Locke's view of simple ideas? Could you explain where he went wrong with this approach? Well, I explained that I do not believe we are given simple ideas as discrete separate qualities, but that they are acts of later analysis. And of course, I'll explain next week, I do not believe we spend our time contemplating our ideas or our experiences. We are directly aware of reality. Objectivism rejects the causal theory of perception in its entirety. So in all those respects, it's wrong. So if you ask me, do I recognize any validity, in the idea of simple ideas only this much not all ideas can be reduced to other ideas there can't be an infinite regress of definitions and therefore there must be some such things as simple ideas that is to say ideas of direct sensations which you get directly from experience and which can only be defined ostensibly by pointing to instances of them I don't always agree with Locke that what he regards as an example of a simple idea is such an example But the basic idea of simple, unanalyzable ideas, I think, is valid if you don't misuse it in the countless ways Locke does. Now, here's a question I have had. I've put this aside three times, and it's come back, I think, three times, so I'm going to answer it now. i mean, three different lectures. Will you give objectivism's differentiation between and definitions of, one, a concrete, two, a concretization? Well, yes, I, I will. I, a concrete is a metaphysical term. It stands for any particular. Any specific individual thing. A concrete man, a concrete wristwatch. Concrete here does not mean made out of cement. <laughs> it is contrasted with an abstraction. And the philosophic commoner term in, in the tr- history of philosophy is what is called particular. A particular. That's what objectivism means by a concrete. A concretization is an epistemological process in which, to clarify some theory, you provide a concrete example. You name or identify some concrete which would illustrate or clarify a theory. So, for instance, I just concretized for you the concept of concrete by giving you a particular example, a concrete river a concrete man in offering those examples i am concretizing for you the concept concrete that's all there is to it concretization is the offering of a concrete intellectually to clarify a point um well let me try to take one or two from the floor if the you haven't written them all out is there anybody who has one from the floor well, you've written them all out. All right, I'll continue through. Uh, if Hume says that the meaning of a concept or a word is its reference, how can he accept the analytic-synthetic distinction which depends on distinguishing meaning and reference? Well, let me bypass what Hume says on that and tell you what his modern followers say. And They say you must distinguish two different kinds of meaning if a term is supposed to be, quote, factual, that is, refer to actual experience, then it must have a referent in actual experience. But on the other hand, if a term is being used as part of what Hume calls a relation of ideas, then its meaning is entirely different. It is meaningful if you equate it with other words. So, for instance, if I say a bachelor is an unmarried male, the meaning of the word bachelor is the phrase unmarried male, all of it. A little world of definitions cut off entirely from reality. That's what's called semantic meaning by many philosophers and is contrasted with factual meaning. Of course, there is no such phenomenon as semantic meaning in this sense, speaking rationally. uh, But uh, then if you were to speak rationally, you wouldn't accept the analytic-synthetic distinction. But in other words, they say there's two kinds of meaning. Some terms are meaningful because they relate directly to experience. Some terms are meaningful because we build them into a web of constructs, arbitrary definitions, and their meaning is the arbitrary definition we give. Um, How can Hume claim that his is a philosophy of reason when he claims to be an arch empiricist and is against reason on principle? Well, I'm not sure that The intention of this question is clear. An empiricist, if that term is used very broadly, is not somebody who denies reason. It's somebody who declares that reason must take its point of departure from experience rather than build upon innate ideas. Now, in that sense, the fact of saying you're an empiricist doesn't mean you're against reason. Now, Hume, of course, derives from empiricism, sensualism, and nominalism, and skepticism. And in that sense, ends up being against reason. Uh, But uh, it's not simply from being an empiricist, but from the particular interpretation which he puts forth. And of course, he would say, I'm not against reason. My whole philosophy is perfectly rational. I've given the rational proof that reason is hopeless. This one is too long for me to read. If Hume has to fall back on the concept of natural creatures with instincts, emotions, and so on, doesn't he necessarily refute his original empiricist premise of no innate ideas? If so, didn't he see this and offer any explanation? Well, you must understand that for Hume, instincts, uh, emotions, etc., are part of the impressions we are directly given. Just as we are directly given the simple ideas, those include certain emotions, passions, and feelings, which for Hume do not derive from our ideas or from our intellect at all. They are simply irreducible primaries. They are part of our given empirical equipment. And therefore he feels no compulsion or about, uh, to, to offer any explanation of emotions. Emotions are simply there. Whatever emotions we have, we have, and that's it. They are raw elements like sensations with no further explanation offered. Of course, since he offers no explanation of anything, it shouldn't surprise you that he offers no explanation of emotions either. If you ask Hume to put his hand, his hand, yes, in a fire a few times uh, and see if this would be the time his hand wouldn't be burned, would he do it? (laughs) Assuming not, what would be his reason? undoubtedly he wouldn't do it and he would say because he's a creature of instinct being a creature of instinct he is conditioned to expect irrationally that the flame would burn him and he prefers to live by his irrational instinct um, here's one on objectivism which I don't know how to answer briefly maybe next week this is the same question I think we've already had Uh, Why did certain philosophers develop a preference for certain psychological processes, namely sensation and perceptions, which they held to be valid or meaningful and reject as meaningless or non-existent other psychological processes such as conceptualization and understanding whose existence are equally identifiable introspectively? Well, I tried to explain that in the process of giving the course. They believed that concepts were not based on reality. And therefore, they simply reconstrued what is in fact available introspectively. Uh, If it'll make you feel better to think of that noise coming from the next room as simply a secondary quality and therefore it's not really real. (laughs) In other words, concepts do pose a certain problem that percepts don't. I'm not saying that the conclusions of philosophers are valid, But concepts are not directly perceivable in reality the way percepts are. Percepts represent a direct contact with reality. Concepts, an indirect contact. And therefore, if a philosopher says, yes, I can grasp perception, but I don't know what conception is, it represents, to be sure, a profound default on his philosophic tasks, since the essence of philosophy is the theory of concepts. But on the face of it, it is more intelligible. And if you were to say, I grasp concepts, but I deny percepts, because percepts are much simpler and easier to grasp. And in this sense, uh, uh, I would offer that as a partial explanation. But um, uh, the full story is, of course, the whole nominalist uh, argumentation. Now, let me see. On Bark's premises, is it enough for an object to be perceived by any mind in order to, for it to exist, or must it be by your mind? No, it can be by any mind, he says, and since God is always perceiving, everything always exists as is sustained by God. His followers, of course, got rid of God, and in the process they were left each contemplating only his own experiences, which had no source. That didn't bother them because they followed Hume, so they dispensed with cause and effect. But then the question was, how did they know that any other human beings existed, even any other human minds? Because their only contact with other human minds was by the experience of their bodies, and their bodies were only experiences in their own mind. And so they ended up with the idea that all that exists is their own mind and its content, and that everybody else was simply a figment of their imagination. And that is the viewpoint known as solipsism, I myself aloneism which is the ultimate upshot of Berkeley's idealism. But Berkeley himself, of course, a bishop, would not take this viewpoint. Um, are metaphysics and epistemology two branches of philosophy as an effect of the adherence to the mind-body dichotomy in philosophy? No. You do not have to subscribe to the mind-body dichotomy, dichotomy, mind you. I'm using the word of the questioner, meaning two opposites. Uh, in order to uh, advocate a distinction between metaphysics and epistemology. All you have to subscribe to is a distinction between knowledge of the object of knowledge, between consciousness and existence, quite independently now of the makeup of consciousness, whether existence is physical or non-physical. If there is something to know, a reality, and something to know it, a consciousness, That already raises two questions. What is the nature of reality? What are the means of knowledge? And consequently, metaphysics and epistemology derive simply from the distinction between existence and consciousness, no matter how construed. Uh, uh, From that point of view, uh, uh, the subjects themselves do not presuppose any dichotomy between mind and body. Uh, I think we should stop here since our time is up. I'll look over what I have left and see if I can work any others in next week. Thank you very much. This course continues with Lecture 12.